All right. We are back with another RCIA session, this time on the nature of God. You will note that we now have our previous lectures on our RCIA Facebook page. So if you wanted to hear one of them again, um, you can do that. All right. So we've been seeing not just certain ideas about the faith, um, we might think of as doctrine. We've been seeing how they have emerged over time. And our faith owes its understanding of things to a great um, history, a great tradition, and interestingly, not just one tradition, the Judaic, Judaic tradition, but to three, to the pagans, religious priests, even though they had a lot of things badly wrong, uh, they were still on to some things correctly, and so we inherit useful things from them. Um, we inherit useful things from the pagan philosophers, and we've seen some of the benefits from that for some of our understanding about ethics, human nature, and the existence of God from natural reason, and of course from the Jewish tradition. And tonight I want to start in the Jewish tradition as we start to think about who God really is. So let's go all the way back to the beginning, to Abraham. So Abraham's in this place called Ur, which is over in Samaria, and um, which interestingly is where Job is from. If you uh, read the book of Job, you'll find out he's from Ur. And this is a very, very ancient time. And Abraham is called by God to go to a land where he's supposed to go there, and God promises to make of him a great nation, and he's going to give him this wonderful land. And Abraham believes God by faith and heads off from, um, it's kind of like where Iran and Iraq are, that type of region, all the way over to Palestine, where Israel is. So that's a pretty long journey. And he's a wealthy guy, so he has to collect all of his stuff, his whole family, he's kind of a patriarchal fellow, so he's got a lot of you know, family members, and all their animals. And this is an animal-based culture, so you can imagine, it's quite an entourage. And off they go to this land. And when we hear this story now, we think, yeah, you know, God called him, and it's good. The problem is, who is this God that calls Abraham? We know now, looking back on the story, that it's God, okay? And when we say that, we don't use any kind of article. We don't say a God. We say God. We automatically think big G, right? And as soon as you see the big G in English, you instantly know who that is. God, right? Omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent. In other words, our God, the perfect being, theism. But when Abraham is being called out, who God is is a lot murkier. In fact, the word in Hebrew for God, you probably heard this word, is Elohim. And it's tricky because Im in Hebrew is a plural and a singular, kind of like our word deer. You know, we don't talk about how many deers you shot when you were hunting. That reflects that you're from low blood, right? Low culture. He <laughs> said, well, I shot several deer, or I ran into one deer. <laughs> same singular plural in the same word. Elohim similar to that. It can mean God or gods. And it's used both ways throughout the Hebrew Bible. So God calls to Abraham. But who is this God? And I want you to think about it from Abraham's perspective. He doesn't have two, three, four thousand years of tradition and history and revelation to fully explain who this is. And to give you some indication about the complexity of this question, get this. Abraham's family members 
bring along with them all their family idols. And Abraham has no problem with this. When we think of monotheism, we always think of what? Exclusivity. Exclusivity. It may well be that Athena exists. Okay, fine. But we do not worship Athena, do we? We know Gabriel exists, but we don't worship Gabriel, right? No way, we would not do that. We understand that perfect God is alone to be maximally worshipped, to be given that total awe and glory. We never use the word worship for any being except God. We'll use lesser words like, um, what, what words do we use? Reverent? What do you call the relation to a saint? It's called devotion. Yeah, devotion. We use other kinds of terms of honor, right? For beings that are worthy of honor but aren't God. But God alone deserves worship, right? That's for us automatic. But again, you know exactly who God is. He's supremely good. So he's maximally worthy of being worshipped. I mean, what is worship if not ascribing worth to a thing? So if the thing is the maximally perfect and good thing, it deserves the highest possible worth ascription. Yeah? So obviously we'd worship God. But who is this God that's calling Abraham? And why doesn't he think, oh, uh, I'm monotheist now, or I always was, and why don't I get my family to get rid of their idols? He does not do that. So, what does Abraham know? We don't really know. We don't really know. But it's interesting what happens when he gets to Palestine. Okay? So he goes from her over to Palestine. And when he gets over there, out comes this local king named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek turns out not to be just the king of Salem, which eventually becomes Jerusalem. Okay? Same city. He turns out also to be a high priest of God Most High. Now, this is the first time in the Old Testament text that that language is used. Not just the gods or whatever, but Most High God. And this God is the one Melchizedek testifies to Abraham is the God who has blessed him. And it's fascinating that when Abraham gets there, he gets ratified by this local priest of God Most High, who comes out and tells him. And as we'll see later in our, 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 our course together, he also is the, brings forward the first Eucharistic imagery because he gives Abraham wine and bread, which is no accident. You can, the Old Testament is massively full of these allusions for what's coming, but we'll deal with that later. But he calls him Most High God. So right away, this gives us some clarity. Again, I know from our perspective, we know exactly who called Abraham. I want you to try to put yourself in Abraham's mind, okay? Because what we're trying to look at is how this is unfolding through time. Now Abraham knows that this is the Most High God. Now, what does that mean? Well, two possibilities. The first is that he's the local top God. Like Zeus. Zeus is king of the Greek gods, right? And yet we know that Zeus wasn't the omnipotent, eternal, almighty God because Zeus himself emerged out of the muck and was the third wave of Greek gods that overcame the last batch of them called the Titans. And the Titans themselves overcame the last batch before that. So Zeus is sort of like the king of the gods currently. And a great many of pagan pantheons worked this way. So maybe God is 
the most high in that sense. You understand that's a possibility if you use this language. Most high in that sense. Of course, it's also possible he's actually the supreme deity. Which again, looking back on the story, we know is true. You understand? You could use the language either way. But at least Abraham now has greater clarity about exactly who this is. From this point forward, all the names of God reference this. Again and again and again, God shows up or sends an angel and it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? And so when this God is talking to Moses or Aaron or, well, actually, technically I shouldn't bring Moses into it yet. Joseph, for example, you know, uh, he knows it's the God of my fathers. And it's this most high God. But still, what's his name? Who is it? Okay, all the pagans had names for their deities, right? Horus, Thor, Marduk. You probably, if you, the more you know about ancient paganism, which you know, maybe some of you are really into that, and some of you are like, no, I know nothing. It doesn't make any difference. The point is they had names. You have names. Why wouldn't they? But this God, no name, rather weird. And then many years later, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the whole Joseph story, the children of Israel go down to follow. Remember this Joseph story? They're, they're starving to death, so they leave Palestine, go down to Egypt. Then the whole enslavement happens, and it's a disaster for the Israelites. They're enslaved. Oh, good God, get us out of this. Then God shows up and talks to Moses. <coughs> and Moses meets God at the burning bush. And when he meets God, God tells him again, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, giving him the, the regular things so he knows I'm up to speed on who is behind this burning bush. But then he says, and I'm going to tell you what my name is. <coughs> and this is the first time in the Old Testament text that we find out who God is. And the name that God gives to himself is, as we talked about already, I am. And again, that is a bizarre name. If you ever named your kid a verb of being, that would be weird. Right? I'm going to name my child would. I'm going to name my other child should. This is not how we talk. So, God's name is revealed as I am. And in the Hebrew Bible, names reveal the essences of things. So, we talked before once, I believe, that what this breaks down to are two hugely important conceptions of who God is. The I entails personhood, that God is an agent or an actor. He is not a force. He is not an idol. He is not a feeling. He is not everything. All of these are misconceptions of who God is. God is an I with mind, intentionality, purposiveness. And then the am is, of course, the verb of being. And this is in the present tense. So the name of God is, I am the one who exists. And this is how we realize that God is claiming here eternality. That existence is within his essence. For the rest of us, existence is not in our essence. And what I mean by that is this. We would all agree that this bottle exists, right? But it could just as easily not exist. We could bring some blowtorches here, wipe it out. Whether the bottle exists is a question of what the facts are. Frogs, do they exist? You say, well, we'd have to go out and look. 
Unicorns, do they exist? He said, well, let's go look. Does the planet Earth exist? Once again, let's check. For every single thing, its idea is separate from whether it exists or not. You understand? But not with God. What if your name was, I exist? Then your name would entail your existence. And that's the nature of God. That his name immediately entails his existence. And this totally changes the game. What does this tell us about which of these gods Melchizedek's God is? Which one? Supreme. Local top or supreme? supreme? Supremacy. Why? Nothing beyond that. Well, that is true. There's nothing beyond that. But why do we know that this entails supremacy? His name entails it, and the only way to have this quality of existence being contained within you is that your existence is independent, right, of everything else. Your existence doesn't depend on anything else because it's what you are. It follows that what kind of power do you have in order to exist independently? Omnipotence. Nothing can get in the way of your existence. Your power is infinite, and that entails supremacy. So for the first time in the history of the world, we get the name of God directly linked to the supremacy. And then we now know that this is the same God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which then we can go all the way back and say, of course. And when you hear the story of Abraham, you immediately insert the whole package, which of course is perfectly reasonable because that's who it is. But do you see how this is a slow unveiling of what's true? Everyone understand that? And this continues, because oddly enough, the Israelites didn't do anything with this concept of God. In fact, in spite of having this concept, they turned around and worshipped pagan deities again and again and again. They were constantly falling for these pagan deities. And God is continually pissed off at them and is sending all these prophets and judges, stop this, stop your evil, I mean, they were throwing their babies into the molten hot arms of false deities. I mean, child, I mean, you just like, what? How could they possibly think this way, given the God that they have? And yet, that's what they did. It, remember how it started with the golden calf story? Remember that? It was one, it just got worse and worse. So the Israelites weren't exactly the, how does one put this? They didn't do a whole lot with what they were given. This wasn't a high value investment, okay? A theological investment, no. And this, of course, is one of the reasons why we believe this is a miraculous giving. Because this is not a local philosophy school. You know, if Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates were running a school, and they said, hey, we came up with this amazing concept of God, you'd be like, okay, maybe they, you know, figured that out, right? But Moses? No. Who is Moses? This old peasant guy, right? Well, he's a shepherd in the middle of the wilderness. It's like somebody comes out of Appalachia with the most complex theological concept in the history of the world. You'd be like, where'd you get that from? You've been reading a book, right? No, you know, God gave this to me. Well, that's interesting. But this gives us reason to think this is in fact a divine event. So, this is as far as we go with the Jews. They sit on this concept and they don't really do anything with it. And the years go by and they go by. Okay, everyone good so far? All right. Then things change again.
because there's something interesting in the nature of this being. We've already seen that God is omnipotent, meaning he's infinitely powerful, and he is omnibenevolent, meaning, of course, that he is infinitely good. <laughs> and two weeks ago, we talked about this infinite goodness as entailing that he is justice. We saw the implications of that. But also that he is love. And we saw the implications of that. His justice entails everyone is going to get what's coming to them. His love entails that it, given the fact that everyone's going to get what's coming to them, we're all seriously screwed, right? Unless God comes up with a way to help make us just by some means other than our own goodness, which is deficient. And so we saw the extraordinary story of him offering us a path of forgiveness by taking the full weight of our sins on himself at the death of his son on the cross. And so we saw his divine love. And thus we see a tremendous central Christian idea that God is love. I'm going to do it this way. It's not that love is God. It's that God is love. All right? But that seems to create a problem for us. And I want you to try to sort of think of this imaginatively. Because technically this isn't quite right. So think, think of this only in your imagination. If God is love, it follows that he is always loving. Agreed? Like he's existing. He's always existing. So God is constantly loving. So prior to creation, right, which technically we can't say because the creation is the moment of the beginning of time. So that's why I say it's technically problematic. But prior to creation, if God is love, who does he love? Himself. Okay. So he's very egotistical. Trinity. <laughs> right? Trinity. Yeah. The problem is he has to have someone to love if he's loving because love is a relation. And this has huge implications. It follows that any form of Unitarianism, Unitarianism, which means that God is only one in person, that's what Unitarians believe, and Judaism is also Unitarian as it's interpreted now. Of course, Islam is. Obviously, Unitarians are Unitarian. <laughs> At least they used to be. Nowadays, it's a different story. Only one in person. This doctrine is incompatible with the notion that God is love. Because if God is love, there must be someone for him to love before he creates. And on these doctrines, there is nobody. Now, here's what's really interesting about Judaism. There's the interpretation of Judaism that Jews now give to Judaism, but there's also the old texts, and it's the question of what those old texts really mean. So, let me give you an example. In Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. Now, who is the us? Right? If God is one in person, then it means himself, clearly. But then who is else there available to create? Well, could God be masculine and feminine? Sure. So but that God would not be different persons. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're talking about personhood. We'll get into gender when we talk about human gender in January, February, right? So just you wait. 
That's going to be a fun discussion. Here's the problem. If God is one in person, he means himself plus something non-God, right? Like the angels. That's really the only other option. But the angels can't create, can they? Well, couldn't God at the very beginning contain all of what's to come? Well, so it depends could, on what we mean by contain. Could, could, God, could, could God contain all potentialities? Again, it depends on what we mean by contain. Let me give so, you an example. Let's suppose this bottle contains how much water is in this thing? 16.9 floral ounces. Mm -hmm. Okay, it contains it. Let's no, suppose I pour some out. What's within the bottle is uh, lots of hydrogen and oxygen atoms. Correct. Right? So let's suppose I pour half out. Right. I pour it out of the containment. Right. Then I have how much left in here? Um, 8.45 ounces. Yes. The problem is when God creates, there's no, it doesn't reduce. Well, God doesn't work like that. Correct. So that's why the issue of contain is problematic. We don't say that God contains his creation. Well, God en envelops then, or God um, is composed of. No, not composed of, because then God's material, uh, and we get the same, uh, even bigger problem. Yes, all it does have potential, but sort of not really, because we also say, see, now we're really getting good, going really well here. We're groping for the idea. Prior to creation, again, not that that's entirely meaningful, but prior to creation, you could argue that every potency is available. The problem is God is pure actuality. So they're not potents with respect to him. They're only potency with respect to what could be created. But in him is total actuality. And that's really, I think, what you're groping for when you're saying, doesn't God possess within himself maximal reality so that everything that is ever going to get created has the ability to be created out of his maximal reality? Yes. Yes. So it's like the ocean contains everything within the ocean, but also in the atmosphere, all the water is still going to go back to the ocean, and all the rivers are still going to go back to the ocean. They all came from the ocean. They'll all go back to the ocean because it's all this. It's an ecosystem. Okay. Let's suppose we go with that metaphor, with the provisions that the phrase "contain" gives us certain problems. What follows from that that helps us here? Uh, well, everything. Everything. Issues from the ocean. Right. How does that solve the problem of God's personhood? She's grasping at yeah. is how Judaism now, in reading back on these texts, explains that God describing him as us, which is that God says, let us make yeah. man in our image. He's speaking to his enormity and his potentiality to create. Because that's how the Jews interpret that text now. Yes. Well, as a hypothesis, <laughs> there are many different potential hypotheses, and we have to grant that that's correct. The problem with the us interpretation as meaning this kind of potency, it, it doesn't, it sounds like they're having a conversation. Let's do this together. It doesn't sound like, like if I'm going to paint an artwork and I start talking to myself as an us, Am I talking about my brushes? Me and the canvas? No, right? I'm the painter. So to confuse what I'm making with me, the maker, seems a problem. And in the case of God, he at the same time is creating not just the painting, but the brushes and the canvas all at once. So again, who is the us? It would have to be something created, but he's talking about creation. 
So this is, again, prior to creation, at least of physicality, which is why some people go with the angels, but the angels can't create. See, what I'm suggesting to you is this, and again, this isn't definitive. I'm suggesting that even in the old Jewish texts, there's the hints of plurality within the Godhead. You also get other kinds of statements about the Lord talking to the Lord. Jesus himself references this in the Psalms. All these hints about plurality within the Godhead. And there's nothing in ancient Judaism that forbids the notion that there's more than one person. Nowadays, of course, this is forbidden because the last thing the Jews want to do is suggest that we Christians are correct. A lot of things changed once Christianity came on the scene and then certain things got nailed down. Well, certainly we don't want those Christians to win the argument. All right? But if God is love, there has to be at least two. And remember, your conception of God and what his essence is has an enormous impact on how you interpret the world, the sense of purposiveness, what is God up to, and huge impact on ethics. It's not an accident that it is the Christians who have had the massive emphasis on love in our political theory, our familial theory, on our charitable organization construction. It's the Christians that built the universities, that built the hospitals, that went out to reach to the lepers, that do the prison ministries. I mean, where did all this stuff start? It's all the Christians, right? Why? Because God is love. And it has a huge impact on what we do and our sense of our purpose. So, what I'm suggesting to you is by the concept of God, we see plurality in the Godhead. Even in the Jewish system, some of the ancient texts suggest there's something not quite right about Unitarianism. Obviously, as Catholics, we reject that. Philosophically, we can see there's problems with Unitarianism. But the real question is, how many persons are in the Godhead? And unfortunately, at that point, natural reason doesn't entirely help us. We can't quite definitively put our finger on that one. But God knows how many persons are in the Godhead, and Jesus himself tells us, which makes it very convenient. And we're very, very appreciative of this fact. All right? And so, of course, you know that they are who? Where did I put that eraser? All right. So, Unitarianism, no. We call it a trinity or Trinitarianism, right? And what exactly do we mean by this? What does the Trinity mean? Three entities. Let's start with that as our hypothesis. Hmm. Anyone get nervous now at this point? Three entities. You see where we're going now? Sounds like we just got one of the ancient triads of Egyptian paganism. In other words, three entities sounds like three gods, right? And of course, do we believe that we have three gods? No. no. So we do not like the word entities. No, that does not capture what we're after. Three is good. We know three is in there. See how Elisa picked three? Figured that's safe. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's try again. Because here's the thing, you know there's three in one sense, right? Yes. But you also know how many gods are there? One. Supreme, supreme wise, there's only one. So at some point we've got to get one over here. And that's, we have to write more than this, because if this is all we have, we have a straight-out contradiction. Yeah. Right? You can't be a, a one-sided figure and a three-sided figure in a plane in the same way in the same time. 
That's confusing a line and a triangle. It's impossible. Well, same thing. If you're three and one in exactly the same way at exactly the same time, that's meaningless. So they're three in one sense, but one in another. We need to get those senses exactly right. So psh, give me some more possibilities. Beings. Beings. Where's the beings go? The three or the one? Okay, three beings, doesn't that put us in the same jam as entities? entities right? I don't know if this B contains that word M. Yes. So it would match with M. It would match with M. And so right away we know there must be being in God. Yeah, one being. Okay, well if that's the case, then that's over here. One being. Very good. There is one being. They have to be in agreement about what to do. Yeah. Or what is right. Like three parts? Oh, yes. Parts is problematic because is God made of matter? No, but I mean, there's three different parts of the whole Trinity, though. Well, it depends what we mean by parts. So we, if we're, you're not saying literally, because if God has. I'm thinking of it as like a body. Okay, that's physical, which has parts that we can take apart. Can we take God apart? No. no, because there's something here. So parts is helpful from an imagistic okay. to sort of an analogistically express it, right? Gotcha. But it's like when we talk about the parts of the soul. Technically, the soul is a simple thing. It doesn't have parts, yeah. right? It's part of the reason, by the way, we know the soul is immortal. Three states. Your body can die by taking the parts apart. The soul cannot because you can't take the parts apart. So the soul is immortal by nature. Isn't that an interesting argument? Three states. Three states. Okay. So can water can be steam, ice, and water. Yes. This is a doctrine known as modalism, which is... <laughs> there's a name for everything. Everything you can think of, there's a name for it. At least it's not a heresy. No, it is a heresy. <laughs> Absolutely, it's a heresy. Everything you've said so far is heresy. <laughs> and notice, we have not brought wood out here. There's no wood, there's no fire. Not yet. Now, if we don't get somewhere by the end of the night, I'll be the one at the Let's fight. Let's throw a lot out front <laughs> after we're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now, everything we said so far is heresy. But you have to understand, the church, a whole council, hashed this out in exactly the way that we're all doing. After, like, three centuries. It took a long time to get it. And you can see all the little mistakes which land us in significant problems. Now, modalism, the idea that it's one person... And he's simply reflecting him in different self in different ways, like water could have different states. But can water be in multiple states at the same time, exactly the same molecule? No. Different molecules, sure, but God doesn't have parts like water. You know, so you could have water, I mean snow that's kind of wet on top and it's in multiple states at the same time. And of course, even if it's frozen outside, evaporation is still happening. So you say, well, why can't God be like that? Here's the problem. If God is, is three states that switch different modes, then we have the problem of how does God talk to God? And we have definitive evidence from the New Testament, at least, that God clearly talks to God. Because the Father and Son are just chatting away. Consciousness. Three consciousnesses. Is that the idea? It does seem close to being. Consciousnesses. I'm going to use an analogy that's physical, so pardon my doing after just going after you. Did you ever hear of the Hydra? Sure. Three-headed dragon, right, guards uh, hell in the old uh, system? That's so Hydra had all the 
Oh, which was the what am I? Is the woman that is it Cerebus? Cerebus. Cerebus. Thank you very much. What's your training? Well, Are you a classicist? So I was not originally, but I took lots of Latin in high school. Nice. Very, very well done. Okay, it's Cerebus. All right, so one dragon creature, sort of. Three heads. Each head has a different consciousness. Who said consciousness? Yeah. So that head one could presumably talk to head two if they have speech. But it's still just one dragon. Right? So that's, you said that's a grotesque image. All right, I grant the point. I grant the point. <laughs> but we're just trying to come up with an image to capture this idea. Now, this is pretty close to what is the official doctrine. The way the church has used it, instead of, because consciousness is, is a much more recent development in, in terms of you know, philosophy of mind and psychology. Back in the day, they used the word persons. Three persons, one being. Who's digging it away? We have music added to this? <laughs> okay, so three persons in one being. For us, every person's a separate being, right? But we're physical creatures. God is not physical. So you could imagine the Godhead as containing three persons in one being, and all of these divine attributes are part of the amnes, the being part of God. Okay, and sometimes these persons are called relations. Now, how does this work? And how should we understand how they are different from each other? And this is really, really inter interesting, especially given what the different persons turn out to do. So let's start with the first one, the Father. Because the church's position is this. You've heard of the procession doctrine or the begetting doctrine? There's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the Son proceeds from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. You say, why does that matter? Because we want to be able to distinguish the Spirit from the Son. And so if the procession is distinct, it means they're not the same thing in two different disguises. Like, for example, you, ever, you know how you see that beautifully bright star at dawn, but it's not a star because it's not flickering? And you're like, oh, wait a minute, that's Venus, the planet Venus? And sometimes we call that the morning star. But of course, in the evening, you can look at up in the sky and you can see the same bright, non-flickering star, which of course means it's not a star, it's Venus. And that's sometimes called the evening star. But the evening star and the morning star are in fact the same thing. Two different names for the same thing. We don't want to have that situation going on with the members of the Trinity. We don't want to inadvertently duplicate a person by calling it the Spirit and the Son when in fact there's only one other one. So if one proceeds from the Father and the other proceeds from both, it follows you have at least two distinct persons. You understand? Yeah? Okay. Now, let's think about the Father. The Father is a person.
What does it mean to be a person? Thinking, feeling, loving, caring. Thinking. In order to think, you must possess intelligence, intellect. So we know, given that God is a person, that he contains within himself intelligence. Yeah? Intellect. Okay, but you also said other things. Agency words, acting words. So God can also, as a person, act. And the part of us that acts we call the will or the volition. Yes? So to be a person minimally requires at least these two functions. The ability to think, the ability to act. Now, let's suppose God is thinking and he decides to think about himself. And now let's think about you thinking and you think about yourself. When you think about yourself, how accurate is the picture you get? One-sided? Would you say it's complete? No. Right. And no matter what, it's never going to be an exact representation of who you are, is it? Because if it were literally an exact representation, there would be a clone of you out there, wouldn't there? But does God ever make mistakes in thought? No. So when God thinks himself, is it accurate? Yeah. Would we not say that God thought is an exact representation of who God is? Yes? Which means God thought is also a When God thinks God, we get a person. And who is that person? the sun. We say that children reflect their parents, don't we? The sun is oftentimes declared in the scriptures to be the exact image or the exact representation of the father. So when God thinks, it's the father. When God is thought, it's the son. And this is why with the son, we get all these terms describing him that have to do with intelligence or thinking or planning. So in John 1, as we'll see next week, he's called the eternal word. He's called the wisdom of God. By the Son, all things were created. And how did God create? By speaking. The Son is also the teacher. You understand? And because it's sonship from the Father... To the sun, what do we call this form of procession? Begetting. And that is why we call the sun the only begotten sun. Eternally begotten. There is no need for any actual physical process because God is not physical. There is no need for any time for this to happen because there is no time in God. He's eternal. So there was never a time when the sun wasn't there. 
So for us, if you beget your kid, there's you, and then your kid comes out later. For God, the begetting is itself an eternal act because God is always thinking God. But the point is, is that the father is logically prior to the son, but not temporally prior, not prior in time, but an eternality of thought. And so we call this begetting. And this is why we talk about God as having a son. Everyone understand? It's tough on a fall night with rain. All right? It's tough. But it's fascinating to think about it and to understand this. Because later when we talk more about human nature and human marriage, we're going to see that this issue of begetting is part of why we are uniquely created in God's image. Because we also have the capacity to beget persons. But understand that this begetting is an eternal activity. There was never a time when the sun was not. Why? Because they are all co-eternal. Nevertheless, the sun proceeds from the father. And when the sun comes to earth, he makes it clear that he is receiving what he is teaching to us from the father. And he is putting himself in a position of humility vis-a-vis the father. To, he says, I do not speak to you of what is my own, but that which I have been given. That is what I'm revealing to you. Showing this relation of the big son receiving from the father what is. Okay, now you can probably figure out what's going to happen down here. God's will is his act. And what do we call God's fundamental action? What does God do? Essentially, with respect to action, he is loving. loving. So just as the son is God thought, the spirit then is God beloved. So when God thinks himself, he thinks the son. When he loves himself, he loves the spirit. And so based on the fact that God is a person, we can immediately see why we have these two different persons, each one reflecting a different way of understanding God's personhood and capturing these two essential activities of God. Activities which end up entailing two different persons. And if you think about the kind of language used of the Spirit, it's this language of love, isn't it? We call him the Spirit of love. He is the comforter. Jesus says that when I go, it's important that I go, because when I do, I'm sending my Spirit. And that he's going to do all these things for the church. <coughs> and he comes down and he pours out gifts of love for the church, right? So, the Spirit is called the love of God, and the Son is called the Word of God. And this is why. Any questions about that? This process, this is called begetting. This is, another, this is just a technical term. You don't really find this in our creeds or anything. Begetting you do, but you also find this one in the Bible. This one you don't. Spiration. And you say, that just looks like you mixed the word spirit in there. That's exactly right. They created a word. Okay, and that's fine because you have acts within God that are unique. And once we understand a certain thing is there and we don't have a word for it, it's perfectly reasonable to try to concoct one to capture the idea. And that's what they're doing with that. But these are both forms of procession. Again, it's not that the Spirit ever was a time when he wasn't. The Spirit is eternally God. But the Spirit spirates out from the Father and the Son as the love of God. 
Now, it's very interesting to think about all this stuff. But who cares, right? Why don't we just say God is three and one and move on to the next topic, please? Right? What difference does it make? What is the big deal of the Trinity? Well, who is God? Right? God is a community of persons. And what is their fundamental relation to one another? Of reciprocating love. That's the essence of who God really is. And it's only in the Christian era that we more fully understand this. Now, why is this so hugely important? Here's the reason. Because the Trinity, God's own nature, is the pattern for all humanity. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's start with the family. The family is what? It's a community of persons who are supposed to love one another, right? Remember we talked about the purpose of this life is to learn love. Ultimately to learn to love God. And we talked about how God gave us these natural forms. And of the seven natural forms that I described for you so far, six of those were familial. Why is family so critically important? Because it is the great cauldron of learning to love. The greatest love we learn is usually in family. Also the greatest suffering we endure is usually in family. But there's a reason for that, right? Because it calls for the greatest love. And this is the model. We are to be a community of persons of reciprocating love. And through family, we come to understand God. See, here's the thing. You've got to understand there's a big problem with us knowing God. You never see God. He doesn't just come down and chat with you. So who is this guy? Right? And for many people, it's very nebulous. Yeah, you know, he's God. And what does that mean? Like, I don't really know. So how do we access God? How do we, you know, get to know God? Well... God made us and understood from the beginning that this was a big problem. The angels didn't have this problem. Right? They're spirits by definition. They share that essentially with God. It's a completely different story. We're physical creatures, you know? We need apples that we can see and things that we can touch, and God isn't one of them. So, in order to understand God, God very graciously and understandably, out of necessity, gave us means to know Him, that are analogistic and, as we'll come to see, sacramental. They are always physical things that by going through those things, we come to understand God. And of course, since virtue is the way in which we prepare ourselves to know God, these patterns are all physical instantiations that reflect who God is. And that when we participate in them and then form the virtues through them, we are literally coming to know God. So not all knowledge is the kind you get from a book. There's the kind of knowledge you only get from loving a person. And when you love your family members, you learn. 
right? You really begin to learn who those people are. And that modeling and that virtue, the habit of love that you form from that, begins to teach you and understand who God is. At the same time, when you find difficulty in your family, it's helpful to remember the nature of the divine family and not to lose track of this ideal of who God is essentially. Everyone understand that? Yeah. Where are women? They're in the family. But where are women in God? Because we don't exist in God. There's no male or female in God. Oh, okay. Male and female are instantiations of the masculine and the feminine. Okay. I, I just don't see myself anywhere yet. <laughs> well, <clears throat> God is uncreated. All of us is the creation. And from that standpoint, None of us are like God because he's uncreated being, we're created being, therefore we're fundamentally different in kind. And yet, there's all these analogies of similarity because we're not completely different in kind. And there are certain analogies with God that we can better understand than others. And the familiar ones are very helpful for understanding the Father and the Son. You say, well, where's the feminine? We'll talk about the feminine more in probably January, okay? But here's the thing to note. All, except with one, all of our references of God are masculine. And all created being is feminine. So I am as much feminine as you are to God. We are the bride of Christ. Okay, so in relation to God, we're all feminine. He is the pursuer, we are the pursued. We eventually start to pursue him. But he was doing that from the beginning. So you can see, we don't have a mother goddess concept in Christianity. We have a mother, and she's like a goddess, only in the sense of her exaltation, but she's human. And this, of course, is Mary. So we have the feminine. And the feminine is hugely important to the Godhead, because it's only through the mother of God that the Son is incarnate. So in Catholicism, there is no lack of value of the female or the feminine. But vis-a-vis God's own essence, he is always masculine to us. And we shouldn't view that in a degrading way because I'm exactly the same, even though you're biologically female and I'm biologically male. But the male, the masculine and the feminine are higher level orders, which then are instantiated in many different things. We call mountains masculine. We have female hurricanes, feminine rather hurricanes, right? So the female and the male are the instantiation of these much bigger conceptions. Okay. Interestingly, the Holy Spirit is referenced in both masculine terms as a he, but also in neuter terms. And that's very interesting. It's as close as we get to seeing something feminine-like in the Godhead. And some of what he does is extremely feminine and nurturing and supporting and loving. And many people have commented on this. But still, vis-a-vis as God, from our standpoint, we're still the feminine vis-a-vis the spirit because he is the actor, the agent who blows where he goes, drives into the church with a fire and a wind. It's very masculine force power imagery. Not always. Say again? I said not always. In the Old and the New Testament, God sometimes uses feminine imagery to describe himself. There's one time I can think of. That's why I said once, with the hen. So you're talking about... Jesus uses that... That God describes himself to Israel as being my, I was your father and your mother. <clears throat> the act of creating 
could arguably just be described as a feminine modality, modality in terms of all three persons. Of the Trinity, you mean? Mm -hmm. All three persons, even though they present themselves as masculine, yeah. engage in quote-unquote feminine modalities. Yeah, that's Creation, absolutely correct. Comforting. <clears throat> yes, the feminine, definitely. The feminine modalities are all present in turn, to all three persons of the Godhead. Correct. And also, if... By modality, she means the activities. If God in the first creation creates us in our image, Elohim, and male and female created we, them. Yes. Right? Yes. So, and male and female are in our image. That means... Yes. Yeah, the feminine image has to be internal to the Godhead. Yes, it does. Yes. Or else we wouldn't be... Or, correct, there's no question that God created the feminine and the masculine, and he created male and female, and human nature consists of the male and female together. That's the first order of the family, of a community of persons in one substance. And the one substance, of course, is marriage initially, and then once it bears fruit, then you have family, right? Or you could call it the original marriage a family, I guess. That's all correct. What my wife is saying, though, is what I'm trying to fully understand. Um, and the weird thing is we've had long conversations about this one. We really ought to revisit what we wrote about this. The activities of the Godhead include all the activities of the feminine. And that's what she means by the modes. But we never say, our mother who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You're never going to find that in the church of, in, as appropriate thing. And the reason, again, is we do not have a mother goddess. And the reason is, the conceptions of motherhood and the divine entail potential. And the idea is, when the God comes into one, he is the agent and the actor. He injects his life into us. We are the matter that are receiving that injection of life, like baptism, okay? And so we then are formed and made from this. And all of our sexual imagery is the masculine enters into the female, and it is her potency that is then initiated that creates the new life. And that's why we say that we are all feminine to God. Because we never treat him as potential. But this is in no wise trying to, A, degrade either the feminine or the, the human female. And it in no ways elevates the human male. Because the human male is only an instantiation of the masculine. Just so that's clear. It is very clear. I'm okay. Glad you cleared that up. I was waiting on me. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, just wait till we talk about gender more later, and that will be really interesting. <laughs> okay, so the first human community of persons of reciprocating love is, of course, the family. The second one, there's three estates. The second one, let's call these the estates for want of a better term is, and this might surprise you, is the state. As Americans, we have a very dim view of the state traditionally, because of course we broke away from a, a, a regime we consider rather oppressive, right? So for us, we have this give me liberty or give me death conception from our tradition. And yet, you can also see many ways in which the state, even though it does tend to use coercive power, and they always have coercive power to back up whatever, whatever they say, and I grant all that, fathers do have a little <laughs> coercive power. Right? And when mom gets mad at you, you sure feel like there's coercion. But the state obviously has much more powerful forms of coercion than a parent does. 
Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, when we think about a great leader, or let's suppose we're thinking monarchical terms, a great king or a great queen, this is a person that you think you ought to love. And you would love it if a great king or queen loved you, right? That's the ideal. And so even in the state, the ideal form, if we could get, get rid of all the nasty politics and the problems of coercion, which are there legitimately. Well, but, I mean, think about in terms of the state and patriotism and how we're supposed to feel about our fellow citizens. Like, you know, if a plane crashes in Ethiopia, the first thing that's on the news is two Americans on board. Because the notion is that these people who belong to our country are supposed to have a special status of concern to us. Yeah, and we do. Right? Or, you find, or you find out that North Carolina just got hit by a, a hurricane. And, you know, what do Americans do? You know, if you're around North Carolina, you immediately start bringing people into your house. If their house is washed away, if you can get supplies or you can jump on the web, you immediately go to the Red Cross and give some, uh, some donations to the Red Cross. If you're a person who has special skill, you're an electrician or whatever, you hop down and off you go. I mean, it's unbelievable the kind of communal love that you find in Americans for one another. Um, people that you don't even know at all. And if you've ever been abroad, this is especially striking. You're with all these foreigners, and then you find out she's an American. You're like, an American? Well, where are you from? And it's like you're kissing cousins. And if you pass each other an American, she, I don't know who you are, and I don't care. Right? But there's something about patria, shared country, and she's, Elisa is correct. The state fosters a special kind of love, which is based on uh, patriotism. But not just the love of country, not just the love of fellow citizens, but, and this is easier to see in the uh, regimes where the leader is a, a monarch, the love of the person. Again, in America, we're nervous about this, and I understand why. When you start with a king like the so-called Mad King George III, you can understand. And of course, we have issues with some of our leaders, whether we should really love them or not. But you remember John F. Kennedy. A lot of people really did have a feeling of endearment for him. Many people had tremendous endearment for Franklin Roosevelt. Of course, his critic probably didn't. Um, and you know, we're just, we're Americans. So when it comes to our leaders, we just love to criticize and hate them. <laughs> but ideally, it would be great if you had a relationship of love. And even in the kingdom of God, you might say, well, government will be completely eliminated there, right? Well, would it? First of all, Jesus is still a king. And secondly, are we not going to need an organization? Somebody's going to have to put up the road signs. Yeah, presumably if we can't get the deer to do that. But what if you wanted to build a cathedral? Right? You'd need a lot of different people to do different things. And you find out what Michelangelo is over here. Hey, he'd be great doing a little uh, carving, right? And it turns out, I don't know, what's your skill set? What do you do? I, I paint. We're going to need some painters, aren't we? Yeah. And it's, okay, you come on and we'll get some painting going. So the thing is, we'd have all these different skill sets and somebody to organize it. But you'd say, but it wouldn't feel like the state. It wouldn't feel coercive. <laughs> Probably not. But it would feel like a community of love, wouldn't it? Performing an action for the sake of the community that's larger than the family. You understand what I mean? So again, the reason I'm really hedging my bets here is because I think we have a lot of negative feelings about the state, and especially given our history and tradition. But you can conceive of the state that ideally it ought to be a community of persons in a relationship of love. St. Augustine talks about this in his famous book, The City of God. He says, the city of God is the kingdom of heaven.
The city of man is Rome, and there's a lot of problems with Rome, but there's still some tracking crossover. And the two cities, in our case, we have to learn how to be members of both cities at once. All right, fine, let's stop talking about the state. And the last one, of course, is what? What's the last estate? The church, yes. And of course, you're catching on to the theme, right? The church is the third. Unbelievable came out of nowhere in the history of the world, right? All of a sudden, there's this universal organization that shows up, not ethnic and not familial-based, blew everybody's minds, further evidence that it's, as the church claims, a divine thing, right? And it is now a worldwide thing that has lasted ever since then. And what is the ideal of the church? Once again, it's all of us. And we use familial imagery. We'll call each other's brothers and sisters using the same images of persons. And we're supposed to love one another. And so you see St. Paul trying to use the image of a family, trying to use the image of a body with all these different parts and different capabilities brought together for the ultimate mission. And what do we do? We reflect the Trinity. Why? Because all of these are the cauldron of our world, out of which all the difficulty and challenge and trial and work and labor for the good of one another that we do when we love each other, this molds and shapes us into full human persons. So that when we see God, we're like, oh, of course. I've been knowing you the whole time because I've known all of this. And thus, by this means, we participate in this pattern. So the Trinity is hugely important. It has had a major impact on the way Christianity has unfolded compared to other religions. Questions about that? Okay, any other questions so far? Because I'm about to pull off the Trinity now. Any other questions about the Trinity? Notice, by the way, the Trinity is not a contradiction. There are no contradictions in the faith. Okay, when we say God is three in one, we do not mean three in one at the same time in the same way. Okay, we do not use the word mystery to convey that contradictions are legitimate. Is there mystery in the Trinity? A mystery simply means something that's unknown. Yes. Anything about God entails mystery because God is infinite. And no matter how long you exist, let's say 45,000 years from now, when you've been in the kingdom of God for a good long time, there's going to be things about God you still don't know. And that's good. Because you have a long time to live if you're immortal. You're never going to get bored. It goes on and on. And you have a being who's infinite. So there's always more. But we do not mean when we call these things that these things have a mystery component. We do not mean there's something incoherent about them. Okay? We don't take something completely crazy and irrational and pretend that it's legitimate. So when we say God is three in one, we don't mean in the same way at the same time. We mean in different ways. Three in person, one in substance. Okay. Okay. Good. I'll erase all this and we'll go back to the, the nature of God. How much time do I have? Where am I? Okay. All right. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about God's power. We've talked about his goodness. We talked about his love in the form of the Trinity and his love for us last week, of course. And now I'd like to talk a little bit about God's power. Because this gets a little bit tricky. And it gets confusing. Let me ask you a question, and I'll try to drive the point for you. Can God make a rock that is too heavy for him to lift? No. no? So he's too weak to do it? No. See, I think God can make granite. 
right? Marble? He can make a rock that I can't lift? So why can't he make a rock he can't lift? But if he can't make it, then doesn't that mean he's weak? You see the problem with this? If he can make it, it seems like then he can't lift it, in which case he's weak. If he can't make it in the first place, then he's weak for that reason. And so it seems like omnipotent power entails paradoxes. Here's another one. Can God commit suicide? She's quick. No. But you see again the problem. If God can't commit suicide, well, is he too weak to do it? Right? But if he can do it, then he can off himself, in which case, how necessary a being can you be if you can off yourself? So there's a lot of these little paradoxes that come out of God's power. And I want to briefly address these before dealing with the issue of, of how God's power mixes with human freedom, because that's another big question for people. How do we resort, solve these problems? Well, let's ask the question this way. Supposing I asked you to try to imagine a square circle. So hold that in your mind. And as you imagine the square circle, what, is, what image is forming in there? What are you getting? Okay, square with rounded edges. That's one possibility. And what's the other way you end up going? I'm thinking of a circle made of squares. Yeah, okay, a whole a circle made, made out of a bazillion squares. Yeah, but whatever you get, it's neither a square nor a circle, is it? It's neither one. There's something about this concept. We can put the words together, square circle, and yet we can't imagine what we're talking about. And the reason we can't imagine it is because we don't know what we're talking about. Now, why don't we know what we're talking about? Okay, meaning what? Why don't they come together? Because what? Correct. We call them technically contradictories. What that means is they have properties that are mutually entailing against one another. Okay? So square circles, even though when I talk about them that way, they sound like things to you, they're really not even things. Because if something's a thing, it at least has to be possible, right? If something's a contradictory, it's not even possible. Now, when we say that God is all-powerful, what do we really mean? We mean that he can do anything, right? But notice any thing. Contradictories are not things, are they? So, can God create a square circle? Yes. How? Well, you can put it in different dimensions. I mean, there's just like ways that we can't think of because we're not infinite. <laughs> okay. If God changes the terms on us, uh -huh. changes dimensions, then the words would refer to something else, and maybe he could make something like this. But if he means it the way we mean it, in Euclidean geometry, right? In a plane, a square, and a circle at the same time, that's what we mean when we're talking about a two-dimensional two figure. Could he make a Euclidean two-dimensional figure in a plane that's both a square and a circle at the same time? I don't know. 
I still think you could. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I suppose that's faith. Like God can do anything. Yes, he can do anything. That's faith. He can do anything. But here's the question, right? Are contradictories things? Concepts. No, they're not. They're not even concepts. See, a concept has content. They're made-up concepts. They're two concepts jammed together that don't actually go together, and we're pretending they do. Contradictions are necessarily non-things. They can never be things. So in your example of suicide, so God can't, it's a con he can't be his beginning and his end, or is that what you're saying? Yes. Right? Yes. God, and it's not a limit. It doesn't limit God. In fact, it defines his power. Because when we say that God can do anything, what we really mean to say is God can do anything that's logically possible. Anything that doesn't entail contradiction. And that means anything that we can imagine. Notice we can't imagine square circles. But we can't imagine skinny walruses. And we can imagine moons made of cheese. Can God make a moon made of cheese? Of course, easily. Anything you can imagine, God can do. He can't be eternal and commit suicide. He can't be eternal and end himself at the same time. And he can't make square circles. And he can't make free agents who never get a free choice. There's a whole lot of things that this turns out to be very important to understand. When God creates, he commits himself to certain things. He can't undo that. But that's fine because if we say that he can't, he's trapped by what he has made, then we're saying he's so powerful he can't do anything at all. Right? Trapped sounds like he's limited by, but it right. could have been the design from the beginning. Yes, exactly. So the fact that he can make a finite creature who can resist him What's is a demonstration of his power, not a limit. And yet you say, yes, but this creature can resist him. Yes, but he had the power to do that. Once he did it, he's committed. He can't go back on having done that. Now he can wipe us all out if he wants to but it will still have been the case that we, free agents, existed briefly and massively blew it. Yes and no, right? But because of our immortal souls, he might end our material ability to choose, Yeah. but he's honored our choice for the length of our existence, which is immortal. Yes. Immortal, immortal. Which, you're talking about immortal existence? Immortal. Yes. Yeah, I think, I th if I understand what you're saying, yes. So, the upshot is, all these paradoxes where God, can God make a rock too heavy for him to lift? The answer is, as you said, no. But that's not a weakness on God's part. Because we haven't asked God to do anything yet. Rocks that God can't lift are not possible things. So God is still waiting for us to ask him something real. We're using crafty verbiage to pretend we've asked a real question. And then say, aha, you can't make it, can you? And he's like, please, let's be serious. Ask me something real, you know. So if your prayers are filled with, God, please, please give me a square circle for Christmas, you are going to be disappointed. <laughs> okay. And the real issue, free will. There is nothing incompatible with God's being all-powerful and making creatures that are capable of resisting him. Okay, this is a central issue for the Protestants that have been influenced by John Calvin who maintain the view that God is so powerful that he must control all things and therefore he even causes us to commit evil. Because if we were able to make the choice ourselves, then we would be impining on God.
But you think to yourself, well, that sounds really crazy. Of course, this is very crazy because God does not cause evil. But then it seems like we can do things that are against what God wants. We can do things in violation of his will. And the answer to that is, yes, absolutely we can. And that's just fine because he had the power to create free agents. If you want to create free agents like we are, then you get the consequences of that. Any of you who are parents understand this very well, right? They're all wonderful when you think about them. And then you look at them and how they behave. You're like, hmm, not always so wonderful. So wonderful. <laughs> Again, another place where our experience and our families reflect something about the divine nature. We learn an enormous amount from parenting about God's nature. Okay, any question about the paradoxes of power <laughs> or especially the issue of how God can not control us by his power. Okay, one other little issue and then I'll, we'll let you go. Sometimes people worry that God's knowledge controls us. How can God know what I'm going to do and it be my decision? Right? That would seem like the knowledge would lock us in. There's always something about the divine nature in human beings. How are they compatible? That's the problem. So let's quickly deal with that problem in free will. It seems like, here's timeline. It seems like if I'm here and I'm thinking about what I'm going to do, hmm, there's my ideas, and I'm going to make a decision right here, all right, that if God back here, he's thinking, hmm, and he thinks about my decision and knows what it is way back here, then it doesn't seem like when I get to this point, that I can do anything other than what he already knows. Hence, it seems like omniscience, having all knowledge, binds their decisions. In which case, there's no free choice. Everyone understand the problem? So what do we do about that? Because here's what's really interesting. The ancient Romans were the ones that believed in the fates. And when the Christians came on the scene, they said, no, 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 we're free. We have freedom. Okay, so Christianity was known for being opposed to Roman Stoicism with its doctrines of fatalism, that everything is written and we just, you know, we're along for the ride. Christians were like, no, 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 no. It's not the, <laughs> that's not the way it is. We have real decisions with real weight and God lets us do things and the consequences can be startling and bad. So act well, right? That's, that's the Christian doctrine. But how is that possible if God knows? Any ideas? As a parent, um, you know, I, I, I know very often, you know, knowing the thought process that my kids are going down, that they're going to make bad choices. And I know it, but I can't intervene and, you know, short of locking them in the house, prevent them from doing it. But I don't because they're adults, so I just kind of let them do their thing. So even though I have the knowledge that they're going to probably make bad choices... Okay. Uh, are you ever wrong? Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm only talking about this area. Uh, Do you ever make those predictions out of probability and turn out to not be right? Of, of what choice they're going to make? I, there are times I hope that I'm wrong. Well, that's, that's very noble. But are you ever wrong? <coughs> All right. God is never wrong. 
right? But I'm along for the ride. You are. That's how I think of God, that since he created us as beings with free will, okay. he's set up a system where, okay, this is how you should know what you can do, and, yep. and I've intervened, but I'm kind of along for the ride. Right. Let me know if you need me. Right. And therefore, with respect to God's action, we should not expect a lot of intervention, and we don't find that from what we can tell. Now, again, when we talk about angels, they'll turn out the angels are doing all kinds of things. And the, ma the huge majority of what angels are doing, we have no clue. When we get to the other side and we see the complete history of the angels and we start to read that, we'll, our minds will blow. Okay, we, it's so, it'll be so massive. But we just don't know. But here we're not really talking about um, God's intervention or action. We're talking about just his knowing. And since he, can, he never knows erroneously, then... He doesn't know with probability. He knows with certitude. And if he's never wrong, how can we act other than what he knows already? And again, it seems like we're stuck again. So your image is helpful, but there's that key difference there. Doesn't God know all potentials? Yes, he does know all potentials. And if everything was potency, that would make this easy because there is no decisions. There's just potency. But God doesn't know, just know potentials. He knows all the actuals. That's the problem. Marvel universe where Doctor Strange sees all, however many options. Yeah. And God sees all of them. God sees them all too. But he ultimately knows the one that we're going to go with. Yeah. Does Doctor Strange know the actual case? Doctor Strange is just a bit limited then. <laughs> he is not God. <laughs> yep. He thinks he's God though. Every now and then. <laughs> yeah, superheroes, are, for us, the superheroes are kind of like the... Um, the ancient gods and the angels, they're useful to compare human beings with God to that inner realm. And we can learn a lot about human nature by doing the comparison contrast or from the top level. So that's a great, great example. I'm going to just tell you right now, this is a setup question because of this diagram. This is the way we typically think of the thing. And if you think of it this way, it seems like you're in an awful conundrum. And yet, you know you make free choices, right? You also know that some of your things that you do aren't freely chosen. They are happening to you. And you can tell the difference because when you're deliberating about something to do, you know the decision hasn't been made yet. When the decision has already been made, you're not deliberating. You're trying to figure out what was decided. It's a completely different process of thought. So we know in our experience we have freedom. But why do we put God in the timeline like this? It seems like we don't know how to think about it. And yet we already said, remember at the very beginning of our course together, we said that God creates time and space. Remember how the Big Bang is not just the creation of, of uh, space, but time. And we said that God has this property called eternality. Now, this concept is about to really blow your mind. So get ready for this, all right? God is present. The amness of God at all points of time. So from God's perspective, right now he's talking to Moses at the burning of bush. He's right now seeing the cross. He's right now seeing Christopher Columbus discovering America. He's right now seeing us. And he's right now seeing the future of all things. God is present at all times. That's what eternal knowledge means. 
So putting God back here and acting as though does he know things up here is actually not the most helpful way to think of it, is it? What we should rather think is that God is up here seeing all of this as one huge now. See, for us, when we say right now, you're like, oh, well, that just passed. But if we measured that, what now is, it is a certain amount of time. It's fractional, but very small. Agreed? And you could imagine in some of our science fiction programs, we, we actually see this, where the now of certain kinds of creatures is wider or narrower. Right? You can imagine that. Their experience of time is bigger or smaller. The angels, for example, seem to have this. Only God sees everything as an eternal now. So for God, think of all of time like this. And God is here. You know, and here's 0 AD. Here's 200. Here's 400. You know, like this. Imagine the timeline going like this. God is seeing it all at once. A Christian fellow named Boethius wrote a book back around 400 AD called The Consolation of Philosophy. And he was talking about how philosophy is a great comfort and help to Christians. And he proposed this diagram to help us understand that God being eternal sees everything as one huge now. So, well, how does this help us with the original problem? All right, that's a great question. Because it's not like God is back here seeing you make a decision up here and therefore forcing you to make it. It's rather that God is right here seeing you make the decision. So he knows it from your perspective back here, but that's because he's also the same God is up here back here. You understand? So the reason God knows what you're going to do is because he's literally seeing you do it. It's not that his seeing makes you do it. It's rather you're doing it enables him to see it. So his seeing doesn't cause your action. And thus there is, again, no incompatibility between God's power, his knowledge, or our freedom. Any questions about that? All right, it's been a lot tonight, I realize. Very tiring. Next week, we're going to talk about the Incarnation. So make sure you bring with you your texts, your New Testament texts if you have them. And we'll take, make sure you've read John 1, the first chapter of St. John's Epistle, and we'll get into the Incarnation. You guys all right? Heads ready to explode a little bit? <laughs> you know, last week and this week were a lot quieter than the other one. I was a little worried about it. Uh, thank you, Dr. Teal. It's uh, mind blowing. Um, apologize for all the back and forth. I was distracted otherwise because I was.